Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is going on, everybody, and welcome. We are back with RizzoCast episode number 87. I'm Steven Risotto, and today we are joined by a very special guest. He is a writer at Primetime Sports Talk. He, uh, he does other baseball writing. He's a big Red Sox guy. It is Jordan Leandri. How you doing, Jordan? What's going on? Welcome. I'm doing well. I'd love it if my, my socks would make a little bit more splashes than Kristen Stewart today, but, you know, hey. Another day above ground. Can't complain. <laughs> yeah, Thanks exactly. for having me, by the way. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, speaking of free agency, I mean, there's so much going on right now. It, it feels like three days of just like trade deadline, like the, the same atmosphere of the trading deadline, but like three days of it. It's insane. We know that there's a pending lockout that's sure to happen. Um, but I mean, so many small markets, and I think this is really good for baseball. So many small markets are getting into the act. The Texas Rangers made some moves. Seattle's making some moves. Um, you know, the Mets, not that they're a small market, but they're a team that, you know, a lot of people have been really down on the past few years. They're making some huge moves. So is there anything that has caught your eye? Any surprising deals? Any uh, surprising teams? What have you noticed here with the you know, the lockout pending and some of these deals going down? Well, first and foremost, I'm surprised that the fiasco of Steve Cohen's tweet after Matt signed with St. Louis didn't come back to bite him in the butt. Now I know he spent, you know, a, an absurd amount of money to get these players. And it's kind of funny because Yankees fans thought that this was the offseason they were going to have. They were going to land a stud starting pitcher. They were going to land a center fielder. They were going to land these depth guys that get on base or, you know, in the case of Rosario or not Rosario uh, Escobar hit a ton of home runs, driving runs that hasn't happened for them. It's happened with the Mets. So they're the little brother is starting to kind of, you know, punch their way through the ceiling a little bit, trying to catch up. The big thing that surprised me though was half a billion dollars going to uh, Corey Seager and Marcus Semyon from the same team. I thought for sure when Semyon signed that Seager was going to either be a Yankee or go back to LA somehow, that was the biggest surprise to me. It's going to be interesting to see how they, uh, can figure that because I know Semyon wanted to go back to shortstop. That was a huge, huge thing about him heading into free agency. And we all know Seager isn't necessarily the best shortstop in the world, but you know, you're paying him 34 and a half or 32 and a half million dollars a year for the next 10 years. So you're going to have to kind of cater a little bit to what he wants. It'll be interesting to see how they make that work. I would be stunned if, if Corey Seager got, halfway maybe a little bit more than halfway through this 10 year 11 year whatever it is uh the the deal at shortstop I mean I think that the trend is and I thought that he would be moved already to third base but you know uh the Dodgers had a situation where Justin Turner was there and he was still you know pretty good pretty decent defensively but Simeon is is interesting I did not have him going to Texas at all as a matter of fact I didn't have Seager going to Texas at all I had Seager going to the Yankees and I had Simeon going to maybe Seattle or San Francisco or you know one of those teams maybe the Yankees uh too if if Seager didn't work out there but I thought Trevor Story would head to uh Texas you know everybody kept bringing up the point where oh he's a Texas guy and that always seems to be the thing in free agency um but I, I do want to get into your guys here. 92 and 70 finish in the American League East last year, the Red Sox. They had a really nice postseason run. 
Um, was this a nice surprise after the, you know, kind of the below 500 finish in 2020, or were there kind of some high expectations heading into 2021? I felt like I was one of the eternal optimists of the, of the Red Sox entering the season. And my seat, like my ceiling for them was like 85, 86 wins. I thought realistically slightly above 500, but all I wanted out of them was September baseball. That's meaningful. I didn't care necessarily if they made the playoffs, but after 2020, I wanted to stop being ashamed of watching them and devoting three plus hours of my night to watching them. I didn't want to watch, you know, the Zach Godleys and the Kyle Hart starting every night. I was, even though he struggled post crackdown, like getting to watch Garrett Richards, who used to be, you know, a stud with the angels, like getting to watch actual proven big league talent every night was awesome. So it was very refreshing, especially, you know, getting into the playoffs, knocking off the Yankees and the Rays, which was, I mean, I just thought it was hysterical. Um, above all else and then you know it's crushing because they got so close and I thought that they really kind of gave it away in the end Um, so it's just it's almost typical Red Sox your expectations start low they they blow through them you're all of a sudden like they could win this whole thing especially if they they faced Atlanta I thought they matched up pretty well against them and then you know like a flip flick of a switch they score like four runs in the last three games of the series so but overall Huge win. Yeah, is Mike Kickham still in the in the Red Sox organization? Because I remember he made Dodgers. I think he made some appearances with the Red Sox, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did last year. I completely forgot about him. I think he ended up with the Dodgers at some point this season. Um, not one hundred percent sure, but that was uh, again. That's part of the <laughs> the past that I would like to get rid of. I when he came over, I was like, the name sounds familiar. And I'm like, but how? And I looked, his last big league appearance was 2014. And I went, you know what? It might've been all my old MLB The Show runs with Road to the Show, seeing Mike kick him in the minor leagues all the time. That's probably how I know him. And yeah, that did not work out well. That's how we know a lot of players. Like that, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Because I mean, playing MLB The Show, even the younger fan that may not know a lot of the players in baseball, after playing MLB The Show, I feel like you would know like 50% more of the league so i feel like you know those kind of games and i don't know if you play out of the park baseball but i mean that's another one where it's just insane there's so many players i mean do you play ootp because that's an unbelievable game i have it on my laptop i wanted to do a simulation where um because i realized that there was a possibility that the nationals could have ended up with both trout and harper in hindsight and Mm -hmm. strasburg they could have ended up with all three of them and i wanted to go back I couldn't figure out how to make that work. <laughs> I want to go back and simulate that and see how that would turn out, but I couldn't figure out how to make it work. And I got angry and I stopped playing because of that, but I wanted to get into it. I just, I couldn't. Yeah, no, it, it takes a while. It takes, I'll go on stretches where I play it a whole lot and I do different simulations, different years, different teams. And then I get frustrated because someone won't accept my trade. And then <laughs> I just stop for a few months. Um, but anyways, Boston, I mean, this off season, what are you kind of looking for in terms of needs? Cause I know every team has a need. Some teams only have to fill maybe a rotation spot, a bullpen spot. I mean, they've already signed Michael Waka. Uh, there's a few other guys to minor league deals, as you mentioned before. So what is kind of the off season outlook for Boston uh, this, this time around? Well, what I really wanted was for the Red Sox to go out and land one of these premier shortstops. So they still have a chance with, Correa or story if they want to 
Um, it's just with the way Bogarts' contract shakes up and how he rates defensively, I think the best case scenario is, or the best thing for the 2022 Red Sox is you sign a premier shortstop, and then the worst case scenario is you have Bogarts, Devers, and, and I'll use Correa as the example, for one season altogether for a run at a title. And then you lose Bogarts in free agency, I imagine, because they'll opt out. Correa is a better player anyway. And you just end up with those two guys. And I think Devers' defense will improve by playing alongside Correa. I think Correa's offense will be great at Fenway. It's just that's the guy that I've been – that I identified it and I'd say maybe like August or so when I realized how bad the Red Sox defense was I'm like eh, I mean Correa maybe if Bogarts wants to move to second but that's the guy I really wanted uh, after losing Erod I would like to add a mid-rotation starter there aren't really many of those guys left anymore I loved the Waka signing I wasn't crazy about seven million base salary but I think that's a really good high upside signing. It's basically the same ballpark they gave Garrett Richards last year, except he signed a one plus one and Walk only got a one-year deal. Um, but I, I, I've liked the moves they've made. I just wish they have would have done more at the, to this point, considering all the you know the high-priced you know sexy names that have gone off the board the last couple of days. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess I, I really think Andrew Heaney screwed up the market for the mid to back end rotation starters because he got like nine and a half million dollars and, you know, kind of upset some things. Um, I want to get back to Correa here because I really like Correa and I think he's right up there and he's going to get the shortstop, uh, the deals that the shortstops have gotten the past few years with Lindor, uh, the 300, the north of 300 million. And we always hear about how, you know, he's a student of the game. He's really smart. He's sabermetrically minded. He's going to age well. You know, he's a bigger shortstop, but there's obviously no problem with that. He's been great at shortstop. Is Xander Bogarts, because I mean, from an outsider looking in, I always thought Xander Bogarts was kind of a mainstay at shortstop. I guess I didn't realize how bad of a defender he was. Now, listening to your comments on it. So, you know, how how does Carlos Correa kind of fit this Boston team? I know you just kind of went over it, but in deeper detail about Bogarts, what is kind of, I don't know if I should say turned you off about him because I think the bat still might be there, but why would you shift him the second and sign Correa? I, I just think I looked at his defensive numbers because I've always thought before I got into analytics, I knew Bogarts wasn't like, you know, the cream of the crop defensively. I, I I thought he was roughly league average. I think he's at like negative 70 something defensive run saved for his career Ooh. at short. Like this past season, he had, I think he was at one point minus 11. He finished at minus five. So he had a ridiculous second half defensively, which is weird because the Red Sox defense went south and his went north. But I just think, I think he can, similar to Semyon, if he moves to second base, it's a less it's a less physically demanding position to play defensively. I think playing alongside Correa will help alleviate a lot of the the pressure on him to make all these plays defensively, and he can focus a little bit more on offense. Now his bat's great, um, but I think he if he moved to second could one improve his value because his defense I think would improve at second base, and two I think he could prolong his prime. Like I said, because it's a less physically demanding position, um, and then as far as the Red Sox are concerned. I, I, I said earlier that Devers, I think his defense would improve playing alongside Correa because there's less of a burden on him to make up for, you know, Bogarts' deficiencies, especially with his range. It, it just it just makes too much sense for it to not happen. But on the same in the same breath, 
You have a former Rays executive, and I think it's going to take a few years for him to really be comfortable shelling out, you know, 30 plus million dollars to one player. So that's why I think like if they're going to sign a shortstop, it would be story at this point. But I'm holding out hope, man. I want Correa badly. I think that would be that's that's a move that puts you in the World Series conversation. Yeah, and, and a guy a guy moving the second is so much more different than a guy moving the second like ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Now you just the 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 amount of athleticism you need to play second base has gone down. Like, I mean, we've seen Travis Shaw get moved there. Um, Mike Mustakis had some reps at second base with Cincinnati because all you just do is stand in shallow right field because you're in the shift. So, I I mean, and you have to like be serviceable with the double play pivot. So, I mean, (laughs) there's very few, um, you know, things needed to skills needed to play some second base nowadays. And it's kind of interesting. I do want to bring up story too, because story is that other free agent shortstop that's available still at the time of this recording. Would he be, and I know Correa is your, your guy there. Would he fit kind of the same mold? Would he, you know, for the same reasons or is Correa or is, uh, I'm getting all over the place here with these shortstops. Is Story kind of a different player with a different player profile uh, in Boston? I think he's a much lesser extent, but they could make it work the same way as they would with Correa. I think Story's offense would improve at Fenway Park. Again, kind of like I think with Correa, he's obviously not the same level player. Defensively, he's still elite though. And again, maybe he wouldn't help Devers as much because De- uh, Correa is obviously better, but I think they could, it's almost, I wouldn't go poor man's version of Correa, but it's it's like an off-brand Correa in the sense that I think the impact he'd have on the team would be fairly similar, but obviously with Correa being a better player, just better offensively and defensively, obviously the impact story would have would be less, but I think it would have a similar, you know, trickle-down effect where Bogarts would be better at second base, his offense would improve because he's not, you know, taxing his body so much on defense, and then the same with Devers at third and then whoever you want to put at first base. Yeah, no, a league average season for Trevor Story last year offensively was not what he needed. And I no. guess the the main thing is that he does some things that, you know, Correa might not, like he steals bases and, you know, later in the deal, if he's, you know, grown out of shortstop, there's been talk, there's talk about some teams that were interested in him at the deadline that wanted to try him out in the outfield. So that was kind of interesting. So there's a few different pros with uh, pros and cons with Trevor Story, um, and and you mentioned that that maybe a mid-level arm for the Red Sox um, might be of interest. Would Marcus Stroman, because I know Marcus Stroman, I consider him like a two and a half, not quite one, but more of a two, two and a half. Is he in their future, or would they not want to commit some some money to Marcus Stroman? I think. I remember reading that they were interested in him at, at, at one point in the offseason. I think it was maybe within the last 10 days or so. Um, the reason I personally am kind of turned off by Stroman is the Red Sox defense behind him. I looked, compared him and Eduardo Rodriguez the last couple seasons. Obviously, they, neither of them played in 2020. So I went back to 2019. Their peripherals are virtually identical. Um Stroman's ERA is better because he's obviously played in front of a better defense in New York and I think Toronto as well yeah he got traded in 2019 so um, I think with the fact that Stroman relies more on his defense than Erod does you'd see maybe not as drastic as like a 4-7 ERA to kind of deceive people into thinking he's been bad but like a 4-4 four and a half something in that range 
It's just he depends so much more on the defense. I think a 5% difference in strikeout rate those last couple seasons. It's it's a significant drop considering how bad the Red Sox defense is. So if you sign Story and you want to go after Stroman after that, I'm all game. I'm game for that. But or, or Correa, but I, I don't think they'd want to make two gigantic commitments like that. But you need to make a statement on defense before you go and get a guy that relies on infield defense like, like Stroman does. Yeah, I think that's a big reason why Steven Matz chose St. Louis. And his tweet that I just saw in my timeline before we came on here, that was like one of the first things he said was infield defense was a big reason why and, you know, why he went to St. Louis. They won like 50 million gold gloves this offseason. So why not? Um, speaking of the Red Sox, and here's the uh, the fun stuff here. David Ortiz is going to be on the Hall of Fame ballot for the first time this season making his debut uh, for the writers to vote for him. And it is the most polarizing and controversial ballot to date. There's two guys that are, are coming on here and A-Rod and Ortiz that have some form of stereotypes. They're not comparable at all by any means mm-hmm. um, in terms of not just player profile, but the length and the, uh, the, the way in which they used and I, I put this in quotation use steroids because ortiz's test was not supposed to be made public it was a survey test and a-rod basically had a mafia around him um <laughs> so what is kind of your your take on david ortiz and we'll get into some of the other names in just a second but what are his chances of getting in the ballot uh getting getting in the ballot getting into the hall of fame first year on the ballot i think they're pretty slim i think a lot of writers nowadays especially the last like three four years are really big on you know looking for I feel like they more so look for reasons to not vote for players rather than look for reasons to vote for guys um I'll I'll get into more of that later when we talk more about the ballot at large but like with David Ortiz I saw an article that essentially said he didn't vote for Ortiz because of the of him getting shot in 2019 because of you know his connection with potential potential connection with drug dealers down in the Dominican Republic it's like the you so you're punishing the dude for almost dying like if he wasn't shot would you have not would you have voted for him instead like it, that can't be part of your logic and then it, it's like I said they're just looking for reasons to not vote for players now it's I think it's again all about clicks now we talk about these guys we talk about these ballots I wouldn't I would otherwise not know their names if they didn't make such ridiculous ballots like they like they tend to do. Yeah, one of the guys that just put out a ballot, um, one of the most inconsistent. Ba- I mean, we've seen five ballots and like one of them has been good that have been into the public tracker. Brian Thibodeau does a really good job. Um, but I mean, th- there's been there's been so many weird decisions and, and weird philosophies with these ballots. And the one that I just saw was um I, and I looked up who the writer was because I didn't recognize his name and he's covering MLS soccer and has been for the last 10 years. And I'm thinking to myself, how does this guy have a ballot? Like it, right. it's, it's a, it's really amazing to me um, that some of these guys have ballots. So are you pro steroid guys? I mean, I know some people are pro bonds Clemens and others are kind of turned off by Manny Ramirez and the fact that he was suspended. I'll give you my thoughts in a second, but what do you think about, uh, about those guys on the ballot as a whole? I think the guys that, especially in the steroid era, shouldn't be punished for 
something that writers didn't care about back then. The league obviously didn't care about back then. Guys like Bonds and Sosa saved baseball by hitting the ball all over the ballpark or hitting the ball all over the seats. They didn't hit it in the ballpark ever. Um, it, I think with people like Manny and even A-Rod and I, I, I'm trying to think of other guys on the ballot that might that have been suspended for PDs, but I think those are the two, the two big ones, A-Rod and Manny. Like if you don't want to vote for those two, I get it. They were suspended. They knew the rules were that they can't take PEDs and they still did it. Um, I wouldn't use 03 against them, but like Manny got suspended in 09 and then again in 2011 before he retired. A-Rod had the whole biogenesis scandal as well. And I believe also 2009 with A-Rod, I I could be wrong, but like those guys, I get not voting for them, but people like Bonds and Clemens and to an extent like Gary Sheffield and Jeff Kent and, like Pudge Rodriguez back when he got inducted, like he's a guy that's a known steroid guy. So people like that, yeah, I don't think you can punish them. It's a completely different era. Like I said, uh, yeah. 100% agree. And I have a few arguments, and I've, I've said this on the show so many times, Hall of Fame is a museum. And like, you can't just go from 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s. Whoa, we're in 2010. Like it doesn't work that way. Like you can't just leave out a whole sector of the hall of the of the history of baseball that's my number one argument and also um you know it as you mentioned it was ignored for the longest time mark mcguire during his 1998 home run chase he had the 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 bottle of andro in his locker and some guy from the associated press wrote about it and they ridiculed him for writing about it and it's just like he ended up being right and then you know canseco came out with the book and said that, you know, this amount of people are using steroids and here are the people that I have injected. Um, Pudge was one of the names and, you know, Pudge is in the Hall of Fame. I don't understand how that's possible. I don't understand how Mike Piazza, who in his autobiography said that he was using Andro. And then when McGuire got caught, he stopped. And Bagwell, who might not have a direct link, still put up monster numbers and looked shredded during that era. So Bud Selig is in Cooperstown. I mean, it's the whole thing is broken. Uh, There's so many arguments against it. I would, and I want to get your take on this. Sammy Sosa is an interesting person name on this ballot. Um, Cause my, my reason with Sosa and I did not have him on mine, but I did have bonds, Clemens, Sheffield. Uh, The reason I didn't put Sosa on there was because Barry bonds and Roger Clemens and you know, all those guys, they had careers before steroids and like Sammy Sosa's career was more defined by steroids than the rest of them. Cause what's his case power, like 600 home runs. That's the only thing. And he had a crazy walk numbers too, but you know, that was kind of the only thing going for him. And that's really steroid based. He really didn't have anything going for him before then he was a skinny outfielder that, you know, stole bases and, you know, hit a little bit. And then steroids happen. So, what is kind of your thoughts on on Sammy Sosa? Let's hear. Yeah, that's that's pretty much my my take on Sosa. Is I, like I'm looking at his Fangraphs page now, and um, spoiler alert: Bobby Abreu is on my ballot, but Sosa isn't. They put up pretty much comparable numbers mm-hmm. in terms of uh, wins above replacement, WRC plus. Abreu is actually higher up than than Sosa is. Better OBP, similar slugging. Didn't have the home runs, but he pants them in double so i think if you're talking about comparable guys like sosa 
was probably my number 11 or 12 on my ballot because I'm a I'm a I'm a big hall guy like like you said it's a baseball museum these guys that had illustrious careers should be enshrined in it um I think Sosa was my 11th or 12th guy um depending on what what I ultimately would have decided with with regards to shilling but it's like I I didn't think Sosa had a good enough career to kind of mask the fact that he did use steroids to boost his numbers you know yeah, no, 100%. Do you want to reveal the rest of your ballot as, as in, in a whole? Yeah, so I had, like I said, Bobby Brayu. I have Scott Roll, and I think the fact he's not in is a sham at this point. Uh, Barry Bonds, Clemens, Todd Helton, uh, Andrew Jones, but that's mostly his defense. And, you know, I think injuries really took away his prime. David Ortiz, mostly biased, but I think he's the best DH of all time. Manny Ramirez, A-Rod, and Billy Wagner. I think again, Billy Wagner not being in at to this point is a sham. He's one of the most dominant pitchers ever. And I know it's a big anti-reliever bias in voting, but um, like I have 31 pitchers with 300 plus saves. He's third in ERA behind Kimbrell and Rivera, fifth and fifth behind Chapman, Kimbrell, Jansen, and Tom Hankey, fourth in strikeout rate, third in ERA plus. And among 451 primary relievers with 500 plus innings, he's third in ERA and ERA plus fifth and fifth. Like he, the dude's dominant. He's got f- over 400 saves. The fact he's not in the Hall of Fame is ridiculous. That's him. He's probably the guy on here other than Roland that I'm like, really? Like there's no argument against him at all. And you're keeping him out for what reason? Yeah, no, he's on mine too. He was just so dominant. The strikeout numbers are through the roof. And a lot of the old school writers focus on like saves and, you know, the fact that Billy Wagner didn't have more than like a thousand appearances or just over a thousand appearances. It's really hard to compare, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult. And we're going to get into this a little more in a sec, but it's really difficult to compare guys that had so many saves on good. Mariano Rivera had so many good team, uh, good I cannot speak English right now, Jordan. Mariano Rivera had so many saves because he was on so many good teams and mm. not to not taking anything away from him. He's the greatest reliever of all time, but that's just a fact of it. Hoffman had so many saves because he pitched forever. Billy Wagner's career ended, you know, pretty much prematurely. He had the Achilles thing in 2010 in the postseason. He should definitely be, be in. I also have Gary Sheffield. I think the thing that works against Gary Sheffield is – a, he was not a great defender. I think if he, if he was a DH, he'd have a much better case and he'd have a little bit more added on to his cumulative war and Fangraph's war and whatnot. And I also think the amount of teams he played on really kind of hurts his legacy. I know that sounds a little weird, but it's it's an argument for Fred McGriff that he had to deal with. And I think since you can't associate him with a certain team or a certain franchise, he gets hurt more than the guys like Chipper Jones and Derek Jeter and the guys, you know, they're not comparable, but my point is that some guys that last with one team are a bit more recognizable and carry a bigger legacy. I put Schilling in, you know, not necessarily a fan of, of what he says, and it's really not political. It's more of a human decency thing in my, in my mind. Uh, but I still think he's in Mike Messina somehow got in over him. Uh, even before the politics shilling wasn't really getting any traction. Scott Rowland is in for me too. Uh, third base is way too underrepresented uh, in, in, in Cooperstown. 
A-Rod, I think, should be in just because, you know, you, I, I can't leave him out for whatever reason. There's too much there. Manny Ramirez, I voted yes for Manny just because the second PED suspension ended his career, and I feel like he really wanted to play. He ended up going to Japan. He had some international experience, um, and that crushed him, and I think that's enough to – to where he served his penance. I mean, the second one ended his career. So that's my thoughts on that. Ortiz slam dunk. I was really close on Andrew Jones and Todd Helton, but they would be my 10th and 11th or my 11th and 12th. Andrew Jones, for the sole reason, he did practically nothing in his 30s. I understand he came up at 19. I understand he's one of the greatest defensive center fielders, but just it, such a turn off his second half of his career. He doesn't have the, you know, anything in his thirties pretty much aside from one season. Jeff Kent is a, is a guy that I have on there too. I feel like his numbers as a second baseman should not go unnoticed. I think his defensive metrics are a little bit overhyped. I don't think he was as bad as people think. Um, and he has the most home runs in the history of second baseman Clemens and bonds. And Abreu would be probably my 13th guy. I do want to address, and I want to talk to you about this, about Omar Vizquel, because, you know, let's put, you know, some of the recent allegations aside for a second. Um, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I think he's more of a compiler. Do you get that same feel? Yeah, I, th- I think, and I wouldn't even necessarily call it Hall of Very Good either. Like, I think he just had a long, relatively productive career. Like he got up to 42 and a half F war and he basically shouldn't have played from 2008 to 2012. He played five more years for just like no apparent reason. He only had two seasons where he was an above average hitter. Now I know he's, I I, I mean, you don't have the defensive metrics to back it up because he played so long before the DRS era, but He's probably one of the best, if not the best defensive shortstop ever. Um, that's that's a big eye test kind of uh, take, but 42 and a half wins above replacement on fan graphs. I believe it's 41 and a half on baseball reference. And I know they don't play the same position, but like that's very comparable to Johnny Damon. And I don't think Johnny Damon's a Hall of Famer. Um, it's it, he, like you said, he's a compiler. He played a long time. He played almost 3000 games in his career and he only accumulated 42 wins above replacement. Like it, 25 like, come seasons. On. Yeah, he played, he played from 89 to 2012. Like he played before my older brother was born in 1990 to when my uh, youngest sister was born in 2012. That is absurd. It, it, and he really didn't do anything. He had one six-win season in his career. It's just, like, I think guys like Orlando Hudson had a better War 7 than he did. It's just, he's, like you said, he's a compiler. He is not a Hall of Famer. And somebody did do the defensive analysis, and I, I understand that defensive metrics are far from perfect yet. Um, but I somebody did do a, a case study on this where they said Vizquel was really good at fielding the routine ground ball and he wasn't as good as Ozzy Smith in terms of range. And I forget where, I, I don't know if I have that spot on, but it was something like that. Uh, I do want to ask about Todd Helton too, because Todd Helton for me is very close and he had some really dominant years, but another guy who battled through injuries in the latter part of his career. And you know, that there's, I do not use the course field argument against him. It's not his fault. He was drafted by the Rockies. I think 
honestly, in my opinion, Coors Field does a lot of harm that nobody talks about. I mean, just waking up every day in that city and, you know, yeah, there's negative effects to playing at Coors Field. It's not just positive. I'm sure you love the positive. Um, but I think it's time to, to stop with the, the Coors Field argument. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I've been fighting people about that with Trevor, about regarding Trevor's story all day. Um, I think we overblow the Coors thing. Like the ball com- moves completely different. Fastballs have more life, you know, in some places than others. And, and again, in, in cores, like curveballs move differently. It's just, it's tough to adjust to that constantly. And Helton was a machine on the road too. So like, I think if anything, him being on the Rockies helps him a little bit because he was so good at home, but he didn't have the cores drop off on the road. He was unbelievable on the road as well. And I, I, I did some, some stat head stuff. It was, uh, there was only seven players in league history with a 500 slug, 575 doubles, 2,500 hits and 300 home runs. And Todd Hilton's one of them. And I think like, I know, I know it's really specific. That's like an ESPN stat right there, but that's, 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 that's a lot of good numbers to have. And he's one of seven players in MLB history to, to do that. And that is that in and of itself is hall of fame worthy. He had over 60 wins above replacement narrowly missed 600 doubles. I'm a huge doubles guy. Like that's why before I got into analytics, I love Miguel Andujar, but that's an argument for another day. Uh, 132 WRC plus. He had more hits than Frank Thomas, Jim Tomey, Jeff Bagwell, Harmon Killebrew and Willie McCovey. Like he, he, he deserves to be in there. I think. Yeah, no doubt. And it's funny you brought up uh, it's, it's funny you brought up doubles because you know, there's something about extra base hits that turn a lot of people on now. And it, it does go to, you know, OPS and all that and, and slugging percentage. Um, but I, 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 I want to mention Andujar real quick. Cause you brought it up. Somebody traded Miguel and did you see this? Somebody traded Miguel and on MLB network in a package to get Matt Olson from the A's. I think it was Chris, Chris young. young. It was Chris and, young and Duhar was DFA'd and I think put on release waiver. So I was like, God, that that's probably the worst. I mean, I digress. That was, that was so <laughs> off topic, but uh, I had to bring it up because I couldn't get it out of my head ever since I saw it. Uh, but starting pitchers, is, it's so interesting because starting pitchers, we're going to look at them a whole lot differently once they get on the, on the ballot. And we're starting to see kind of the tail end of pitchers that pitched in this generation. Jake Peavy uh, appeared on the ballot now for the first time. He's probably in Lincecum, I guess, kind of, not really. Um, but it's going to be a lot harder for starting pitchers to get into the hall of fame. Cause you know, the old school voters are still going to kind of be around and they're going to notice the lack of innings. They're going to notice the lack of wins, which is a stat that nobody should be looking at. Um, <laughs> we, this is, I mean, that was the first, and I think a lot of people don't look at wins opposed to 15 years ago. Some, some still do hall of fame voters, I think still do but it's going to be increasingly hard to get into the hall of fame. And I think Verlander still has those numbers. Scherzer, I think is going to have those numbers. Kershaw, of course, but what would your criteria be in terms of this current generation? And I'm I'm trying to think of say Jacob deGrom, for example, we look ahead to, you know, a few years down the road, a lot of years down the road, I should say. And Jacob deGrom pops up on that ballot or a guy who's, you know, Shane Bieber. I'm, I'm, topping off names in today's game how would we even evaluate these guys i feel like it's such an interesting conversation to have this is where i think you almost have to be praying that 
by the time they're on the ballot, you have a lot more sabermetric minded individuals voting because Please. like you said, the winds, the winds people are going to absolutely kill it. Like I already am mentally preparing for Jacob deGrom to not be a unanimous hall of famer or like a second or third ballot guy. And that's just ridiculous. He's having one of the best peaks in MLB history, or at least in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Like people are like there are stats that compare him to Pedro during his run of from 98 to 2001, where he was, you know, one of the best pitchers ever. Um, it, it, I, I, it's really tough to, to figure out like what the criteria needs to be. Like I, like I said, I think you need to be analytically minded or at least open-minded to looking at analytics when it comes to these guys, because, you know, Jacob DeGrom had what a one seven ERA in 2019 and was under 500 for his record was like 12 and 13, maybe it was 13 and 12. Like, how are you going to hold that against him? And then I think he went seven and nine one year and had an ERA like a notch above two. Like how, how can you punish him for that? Like, do you, do you want him to go out there and throw a perfect game every single, every single night? That's like, if his offense isn't doing their part, that's not the fault of the pitcher. His job is to go out and dominate and he does it. Yeah, no. And I a hundred percent. And I never even, I never in my entire life, never looked at wins. I always thought it was such a bogus stat. A guy could throw eight scoreless innings and, you know, give up an error or not give up an error, but somebody could commit an error and he would, you know, get the loss or he could pitch nine great innings and give up a bloop single and a walk could score or something like that. And, you know, it's, it's really not fair. And I think, also, it goes for relievers, too. A guy could come in for one batter, and then they could score when he's technically on the mound in the half inning, and, like, that's stupid. Like, you know, I think the win should be given to – I don't know if it should be given at all, but I think it should be given to the starting pitcher that dominated that day opposed to reliever who came in for a batter. So it's it's broken, and I can't believe people still look at it. Now that leads me into this final hall of fame point here. I talked about the, the amount of ballots that we've seen, but for you, what would you say warrants a ballot, you know, getting removed or somebody getting their vote taken away? And I'll tell you mine after, but I, it's, I always see people on Twitter say, you know, this guy should have his ballot revoked because he did so-and-so or voted for so-and-so or did this what would be your criteria for taking a vote away from someone? If you submit an empty ballot, <laughs> like seriously, maybe, maybe not completely revoked to the point where you like can't get it back the next year. But if your ballot is submitted and it's empty, it shouldn't count. Like, like, are you kidding? Like, I know that I'm a little bit lenient with a lot of guys. I think when the ballot came out, I said there were as many as like 15 or 16 players you can make a case for on this ballot being a Hall of Famer. I understand there's some people that are really strict and are like, no, there's seven or there's five. And it's like, but for some reason, I can't remember his name. It's escaping me right now. But the guy who submitted the empty ballot that said, you know, anti-PEDs, you know, and then he thinks he's doing a favor for Kurt Schilling by not voting for him it's like I don't think that's what Schilling really wanted but anyway um, and then said he was close on rolling but decided he wasn't elite 
or he was he didn't stack up well against elite third baseman and i'm like he's like a top 10 third baseman ever where where like how is he like where what is elite is he is that top three or four and there's like no third baseman in the hall yeah it's like he's a top 10 third baseman of all time he's one of the best defensive players ever he had he was a great offensive guy i know injuries kind of killed him in his prime but he had a great career he's like like i said one of the best defensive players ever but if you submit an empty ballot like it, it almost it it either shouldn't count or you should lose your right to vote in this and in, in like I shouldn't say right your privilege to vote in in hall of fame ballot of balloting because imagine being so great at your job and then some random dude that watches maybe five or six baseball games a year is like uh you know Scott Rowland like that name just doesn't you know really ring a bell so I'm not going to vote for him and then you have dudes voting for like Jimmy Rollins and Ryan Howard because he he covers the he covers the paper in the philly area it's like really the empty ballots though that you submit an empty ballot it, it i i seethe i get ticked yeah no i i'm down on empty ballots too i would also say if you really think there's no hall of famers don't submit one like don't because yeah. it's going to take like three or four votes for you know the guys that he didn't vote for to recover from that and you know, it's it's really, 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 really bad to submit an empty ballot. I have another one for you, too. I would say outliers. So if if you're one guy that votes for LaTroy Hawkins on a Hall of Fame ballot. And Is that Bob Nightingale? <laughs> I, I think it. you're completely right. It was Bob Nightingale, which is the most ironic thing ever because it's not surprising anymore now. I think it was Bob Nightingale. But if you're one person that votes for a player and the other hundreds of guys don't and the other hundreds of writers, I should say, don't, then you're obviously wrong and you should have your hall of fame vote revoked. And it goes for the other way too. If you're one guy that didn't vote for Derek Jeter and 99%, more than 99% of people did vote for Jeter, you're wrong. Like it's just factual information that, he's a hall of famer based on what the other people said. And one person doesn't vote for him. Like that's insane. And I know it was more than one you know, person that didn't vote for him, but I'm making a point, but I just say the outliers, I'd say the outliers um, probably uh, would, would lose a vote in my opinion. I don't know how it would work. I don't know how that process would, you know, how that phone conversation would go like, Hey, you know, I just got your blank ballot. You don't have a vote next year. Like just imagine that conversation with like James Forbes, Clark or whoever in the hall of fame is in charge of that BBWA, whatever. That would be insane. So, yeah, I think, I think I, at least if you're going to submit an empty ballot, I need you to write an article of some sort explaining your thought process on a lot of these guys. So like, if you're anti-PEDs, I don't blame you for not voting for any PED guys. I'm not going to ridicule you for that. My preference is put them in. If you don't think so, you don't think so. But for somebody like Scott Roll, I need you to show me your research and tell me why he doesn't stack up against elite third baseman. I need you to show me Jeff Kent and show me why he doesn't stack up against elite second baseman. Show me somebody like Andy Pettit, who I think is also a bubble case, why he doesn't deserve to get inducted into the Hall of Fame. Andrew Jones, same, same type deal. Bobby Abreu even like there are a lot of guys that are worthy of consideration. You need to tell me why you didn't vote for them for me to think you actually take your job seriously or your responsibility seriously. This is too powerful of a position in the baseball world for you to just be like, 
like the guy who voted for Jimmy Rollins and Ryan Howard was like, all right, get me a pen. Yep. Of course I'm voting for Rollins and J and Ryan Howard. I'm like 14 reference war Ryan Howard who stunk after 2012. Like really? Um, I think you, you need to, at least if you're going to submit an empty ballot, you better be prepared to back that up. And Mark Teixeira would like a word with that guy too. Yeah, there's, seriously. there's, yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's a matter of opinion. And I think the reason that everybody's been saying, wow, that's a bad ballot is because they have been bad ballots because they're inconsistent. And that's all we ask as fans of baseball is for the writers to be inconsistent or to be consistent uh, and not have any inconsistent analysis when they're doing this. Cause it is a big deal. As you mentioned, um, like if you want to not vote in steroid users, I understand why people would be ticked off that people cheated the games and cheated the record books. I get it, but there's also a whole different side that they have to be exposed to, I think. Um, so we're going to wrap up here. Um, and, and you, you're not going to avoid this, but the first pitch that you threw in Boston, <laughs> I see it oh, man. so often. You don't even, do you need, do you even have an idea on how, how often MLB network shows that clip? I don't get to watch MLB network much. Cause I it's, I don't have my, like my cable package out here in Arizona. Um, so I don't get to watch MLB network that often, but you know, whenever it pops up on social media, I get tagged a few times. So I see, I see it from now, from now and then. And I actually, somebody in one of my classes, we had to do like a profile story and he was like, I want to interview you about your first pitch. I'm like, of course you do. <laughs> I can't, I can't escape it. Do you want to give some, do you want to give some background on, on what happened? Yeah. I mean, it's just the whole, the whole thing is I'm throwing out the first pitch with the 1967 impossible dream team behind me. Mike Andrews is the, you know, he's, he's catching for me, tells me don't throw it too hard. Don't throw it too soft. Don't throw it too high. Don't throw it too low. Don't basically don't try and like rip his glove apart. Don't make him have to reach for it too far. Older and, guy, older guy, yeah, older guy. <laughs> definitely. He was, I think he was in his definitely had to be in his sixties or maybe early seventies by that point. Um, and I'm in the middle of my windup and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to let it go. And I was just, it was too late in my windup to make that kind of commitment. And it just sailed on me. That thing took off. And I, like, I always talk about how my back like cracked in like six different places. When I threw that, I was so tight when I went up there, it was insane. And I, yeah, like I said, made that commitment way too late. And, you know, unfortunately, Mr. Tony Capo Bianco had to pay the price on the, on the receiving end of that. Yeah. I'll, I'll say it. It hit the cameraman in the balls. So yeah. um, he's, he's still feeling it a few years later, but that's one of the all-time clips. And uh I'm glad it doesn't seem like a, a sore subject at all. I'm sure you you like you like when people bring it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I played it off pretty well. I, <laughs> I knew when it happened. I think I tweeted yikes with like an ellipsis after it when it happened. And then I tweeted again in that game because that was an Erod start and he struggled. And I said, you know, Erod's not looking too pretty out there. You know, do they need me to go warm up? I was just getting started and, you know, stuff like that. And I even messaged Jackie Bradley Jr. on Snapchat because he used to have a public snapchat i don't know if he still does but he did at the time and i said you know thank you for having a more accurate arm than i did because he had cut down a runner at the plate um and he said you just need a redemption shot so he was a pretty good sport about it i got to go on you know section 10 got to do a bunch of different interviews it, it was it was 
a cool like 15 minutes of fame for all the wrong reasons a nice icebreaker because I didn't make a lot of friends my junior year of high school at a new school so you know it was a good icebreaker my senior year uh you know it, it there are definitely pros and cons to the situation yeah and I guess if you have like there's so many of us and I lack this dude there's so many of us that like wish they had a fun fact when you know there's there's ice because you know when I got to college they always do the you know, one interesting thing about yourself, you have one. And like, that's, that's so perfect. And like, it's such a perfect story to tell. So I uh, can't wait for the future kids to hear about that one and know that their, their dad's a legend for, um, you know, doing, doing what he did there. Uh, so real quick, before we sign off here, I know you're writing uh, at primetime sports talk. Um, Anderson Picard was on the show. Love Anderson. He's going to, you know, take the media world by storm soon, but what is kind of your career aspirations? What is the, what is the end goal with, uh, with baseball media? I definitely would like to write and continue writing beyond college. I think that's once I hurt myself in high school, I knew that I had no shot at playing baseball beyond, you know, maybe a D three school, but I always wanted to be in the game. So I like writing, I think the ultimate end goal is I want to do radio talk show, like sports talk show. I love talking about sports. I think I articulate way better when I'm speaking versus when I'm writing. I'm also a lot quicker to, you know, respond and, and like I said, articulate my argument, but that's, that's probably the end goal is sports talk radio, but obviously I would like to keep writing on the side because I do, I do have a passion for it as well. A lot of fun. Appreciate it. Jordan, thanks for coming on. I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. All right. You guys can follow Jordan on Twitter at Jordan, J-A-O-R-D-A-N-L-E-A-N-D-R-E-55. Go follow him on Twitter. Keep up with uh, all your Major League Baseball analysis, content, Red Sox, I mean, all over the place. And you guys can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. New episodes coming soon. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching. Subscribe, Apple, Spotify, you know the drill. And uh, yeah, see you next time.